Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another Motorsport Magazine podcast in association with Mercedes-Benz. Dad, when we get home, can we... Yeah, you'll have to play it in the garden, though. Dad, can we stop at the... Good idea. We'll get one for Mum, too. Daddy, I think I need... You'll have to hold on to it. The new Mercedes-Benz V-Class has built-in navigation, active park assist with reversing camera, and electric sliding doors on both sides as standard. All you need to anticipate your family's needs. The new seven-seater V-Class, inspired by parents. Search V-Class. Dad! Don't even think about it. You can probably see that there are a few things a little bit different about today. First of all, that we're at the Kennels at Goodwood, ahead of the Revival, and we're not at Motorsport Magazine's base in Finchley. And you'll recognise not just one, but two familiar faces. Rob Widows, a very warm welcome back to the podcast, and Jochen. <laughs> I have a suspicion this might be quite a lively hour. Jochen, a very warm welcome. Thank you so much for sparing time. I mean, you've literally just flown in to be with us uh, ahead of the revival. So thank you. Yeah, exactly. Thank you, Ed. No, no, it's always a pleasure to talk to you guys. And Rob, good to have you back. I know. For one <laughs> night only, I think. <laughs> we've, we've managed to pull you away from your, your new venture of the Goodwood podcast. So thank you very much for, for joining us. Oh, no problem. Yeah. It's great, great to be back. And well is, it, is it like a sort of Sky pundit joining the BBC team for a race? <laughs> well, well, not exactly, no, but uh, it's just great to be back because, you know, these podcasts are, are so good, aren't they? And, and you're doing lots of great people. And this is the fourth one you've done this week, I gather. It is, yeah. Forgive the, the slightly jaded That's look. That's nice. But it's, yeah. I've, I've saved the best till last. Yeah. Um, Jochen, we've got so many readers' questions. Uh, we've, I've, I've got lots of notes to sort of work through your career, but there is, you did so much from touring cars, sports cars, Formula One. Um, so we're going to have to try and dip in and out, otherwise we'll be here all afternoon. Sure, yeah. and I'm sure you've got much better things to be doing. So um, I wanted to rewind right back to the beginning. And am I right that you started off on the sea and not on racetracks at all? Because you, you actually went into racing quite late, didn't you? Glad somebody asked me this question. <laughs> <laughs> yes, of course, uh, I was um, on my way to become a sea captain and it all changed suddenly because I got into contact with a hill climb race and I got pulled away from my initial romanticism for the sea um, by the smell and, the, and the, uh, the looks and, of course, the noise and all that and the whole atmosphere of racing. I mean, apart from that, I did like driving a car already obviously so um but racing had never occurred to me but when i saw it finally and heard it i thought let's do that 
Easy. <laughs> but it was it, quite quite quickly. You were picked up by Ford, and you were offered, I think, sort of compared to what you're being paid before, uh, a very generous contract. That must have been quite a. I mean, that was a massive step in your career. But it must well, been, look, it was, I mean, no, not quite that easy. I mean, I had to come in and work first as a mechanic at an Alpha dealership. They had a race car, and that's what I wanted to drive. Somebody else drove it at the time, and um, so I bamboozled him into letting me have it eventually, and so on. So that's how it started. And the first race I did in 68, <clears throat> and then 69, you know, I did a whole season of hill climbs, mainly. You know, the odd Hockenheim and some other Ulm Laupheim, which was an airfield race, that was circuit racing. But, you know, that for me, it was as easy as hill climbs, everything. So it was. It made no difference for me whether I drove on a circuit. Of course, you have to learn a little bit, just you know, to behave in traffic and all that. But it came easy too, so it was not a problem. And so then, after the uh, when when was it that the Fords so contract the started? End of '69. I had an invitation because I was always racing against the Fords, and uh, I was always very close, but couldn't beat them because they had the Escort Twin Cam, which was actually a very good car. It was really far advanced over the Alphas. The 1600 GTAs, but I was close, you know, I was always gnawing, gnawing on the heels and so on. So they invited me to Sanford in the winter and, um, you know, with um, 30 drivers from Formula One, everybody was there, you know, but Ford invited, Nepash, you know, lots of Frenchies and uh, good guys, you know, but um, there were four guys within four tenths of a second and I was one of them. So there was the two works drivers, Glemser and Moore, and of course Dr. Marco, Helmut Marco, who was also very gifted, very talented guy, and me, also very talented. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> anyway. So I got a contract very quickly, and then this of course happened, what you said, they made me a generous contract, but everything is generous after 150 marks a month. <laughs> you know, so that was basically what I earned on the boats. Um, and so on, yeah. so you, you mentioned Helmut Marko there. I mean, I think sort of the vast majority of people nowadays know him as, as the Red Bull man, you know, but actually he had, he had a very successful driving career. I mean, he, as you said you, just then, he was very quick. I mean, uh, what was he like sort of back then? Because he must have been a very different person to who he is now, certainly job-wise. Helmut was a very, very great character. To me, he would have been the first Austrian world champion, for sure. Really? He had the talent, he had everything. He raced in South Africa against each other. I was with the Ford Capri still, so it wasn't in the same. He had a Lola 2-litre, and the following years then I drove the Chevron, but he wasn't in there anymore because he did already then Formula 1. But he was very good with the ladies, so occasionally he came out of a massage situation in the hotels with a red cheek, both sides, because she slapped him. She said he's a very nice guy, but a bad character. <laughs> you know, but he was lovely. He was a, he was a great guy. Um, it, we would, you mentioned the, the hill climbs. It's such a specific discipline, certainly yeah. you know, nowadays. And even back then, it was, it was so different to circuit racing. What was, what was it like racing on these hill climbs? Because they were even more dangerous than the circuits back then, which is saying something. Uh, that may be so, but uh, you know, circuit racing was dangerous, if you like. Hill climbs, naturally, often there were no guardrails, no nothing. And, um, but it taught you, for sure, a lot. And one thing, definitely, focus on it from the word go, because you cannot make it up anywhere. What you've lost, you've lost for good, and so on. So that made you, of course, very, very focused and very disciplined in your approach to racing. That was nice, you know. I had a big accident once, and I was terribly lucky, 
when I think of it. I often thought about it. I was terribly luck lucky to survive that one. It sounds a bit corny, but it was exactly that. I bounced through a long right hand and with the with the alphas, you know, with the with the reaction. I was just dreaming away because I was first one with the greatest of ease and the first run in practice and the second run then this happened. And I bounced through it until I realized I was on an hectic oversteer. It was too late. And I couldn't catch the car and I flew down um, the, the, the the hillside, there were these enormous trees everywhere, and I had one of them sideways, and it just, I bent forward because my seatbelt had opened, luckily. So I was bending forward, and the tree hit me just behind. Had I sat like this, I don't think I would have survived it from the looks of the car and everything. So that was one of these <laughs> guarding angels, guardian angels, which I had already then, and you must never forget that, and it taught me a lot, and so on. So it was my, but then, of course, you destroyed the car, and the guy said, <clears throat> the alpha dealer said, if you wreck it, that's it. So I stood there and I climbed up and he had to do a long detour to get to the top. And he came along because he was happy of the first run. And he, he looked and he said, he said, how did it go? And he looked at my face and, you know, he sort of, he said, did you wreck it? I said, yeah. And the tears came out of my eyes. Seriously, I cried quietly because I thought, how goddamn stupid can you be? Now you have it and now you had it suddenly. <clears throat> then he stood there, was chewing his bottom lip for 20 minutes, and he said, well then, we built up the other one. We had another one in parts in the garden, lying there in the dealership. So we fixed that one, I continued racing. And I thought, people like that you need, and they're amazing. You know, I mean, they have obviously faith in what you're doing. So that this happened, sour, sour grapes, but, you know, it happened. And somehow when you race, it can happen. It shouldn't, but, you know, it can. So I was very happy that um, he was so generous that he continued with me. Jochen, can I ask you just yeah. at this point, I mean, all those experiences that you're describing mm. um, were a tremendous foundation for the rest of your career, weren't they? And, in that, and nowadays it's so, so different. I mean, if we, th if we think of someone like Verstappen at 18, he's in Formula One. But you, all those experiences, all, that, all those different things you did, did they... M eventually make you the driver you were? Well, you have to see first what driver I became. I mean, <laughs> I hope not, but no, I'm joking. It, it did, of course, but it forms the character. Yeah. And when I look at young Verstappen now with 18, he's a great kid. I mean, he's driving well, but he's driving reckless and he has to learn a lot. And if he's given the time, he will turn into a very good driver, obviously. But um, I think it's a little too early. 18 years is a little too early and so on. So he will have some some experiences still in his sure. in his uh, stairway uh, upwards. So it's difficult. Um, d sorry, jumping forward again, you were doing lots of racing for Ford. So how did the F3 drive come about and, what, and st why did you suddenly think, right, let's try single-seaters or was that a, a, a bit of luck or did no, you, were you looking for it? No, 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 not at all. Basically, a friend asked me in 71, I was nearly 25, I was 24 still, but, and he said, would you like to drive my Super V? I said, what's that? Seriously. And um, I said, I have no idea, never driven one, never drove, sat in a single-seater, never drove a go-kart, I had no idea. Then I drove a normal, uh, normal V, because the other one wasn't ready yet, in Hockenheim, and I thought, this is great. This really feels nice. And then the Super V was, of course, better, and then we had the first race, and I was leading. 
I was leading most of the race, even though we went to bed at five in the morning, being silly. But, <laughs> of course, then I paid for it. Then at the end, when I sort of, I knew I shouldn't lead in Hockenheim with the long straights in the back. You know, they all, they will eat you up. You know, when you get down to them, they did, of course. So I finished fourth or fifth, uh, but just, just, but I knew I could do it. And it felt good. And then uh, I was, you know, racing in the so-called Gold Cup in Europe. And after half a season, we were in Finland. I was leading by a good margin. I won a few races. Swaxner won. I won Nürburgring. And I won quite a few others. I can't remember all of them. But And then Ford called me while I was in Finland. It was Nepash and said, can you get out of your contract? We bought you Formula 3. So I related to my friend and I said, he said, do it, do it, it's great. So then I went to the UK and uh, changed my license to a national one, which was not exactly in the rule book, but we could do it for some reason. Anyway, and then I did six races of the championship and I finished six because I finished from first to six placings, you know, in these six races, which was good. Put me on the map. And you, I mean, you were racing in F3 alongside the likes of Hunt and Schechter. I mean, and Williamson. And yeah, I mean, it was, it, was a really, it was a golden era. I mean, there were so many golden eras in, in, in Formula 3. So. But it was good, yeah. No, no, yeah. it was absolutely, yeah. Sorry. And, uh, but, you know, as you said, you, can't, you took to single-seaters very well. Um, but was there a lot, when you got put up against the likes of Schechter and Hunt, would, was there a time you thought, oh, I've got quite a lot to learn here? Because it, it seems very natural from your results and what you managed getting into cars straight away. Yeah, no, I didn't feel I had to learn a lot. I, I, I felt I was up to it. And uh, what I wasn't so sure um, about was uh, setting up the car right, whether I've been doing the right things or not sometimes. That made me sometimes quicker, sometimes slower. Plus the engines varied a bit. They had the Nova engines, mm. which were good. But, um, you know, sometimes Williams had a better motor, we assumed, because I think Wheatcroft spent quite a lot of money on him because he loved the guy. And um, Schechter was like me, up and down, depending on, and the track too. And, uh, you know, so sometimes I could beat him was Castle Combe and occasionally some other race where I finished ahead of Jody and on uh, Williamson had gone or I was just behind him or things like that. So I remember one race in Silverstone. Williamson had taken off and he was gone and I was with a bunch of the cars. The peloton, as the French would say. <laughs> and um, so we were paddling along happily. And I thought being first of that group is like winning the race. Mm. So that's what I did. You know, just sort of they homed in on me and so on. And, you know, the first guys, nobody wants the other guy to overtake you easily. But I managed to get by them. And so I finished second after Williamson, which was good. And uh, that gave me a lot of confidence too, because I knew I could do it. And then the following year, of course, when we did Monaco, the first time, there were 80 cars, 20 were allowed to run, and so on. So we had to qualify always through the various practice sessions. And then finally had to do two qualifying races, or one rather, but two heaps of cars, and the first 10 of each managed to get into the final. So I was last on the grid, pouring with rain, and um, I hit the curb here and I hit the curb there, and the guardrail there lightly. My mechanic was all, <laughs> you know, <laughs> he said, mass. It was a, a lovely guy from Denmark, you know, Gunnar, a great guy. And uh, he was like the great Dane, you know. Sort of, he just looked around and nobody dared to get close to the car because it looked like it was going to bite any minute. And um, I took 11 cars in the first lap in the rain. And third lap I was in fourth place. 
and the second and third had tangled up in Mirabeau and they stopped and we all came just about to a halt and one of them backed up and drove over my nose because I was the first one behind them. So I had a quick pit stop but it dropped me back to sevens and I had lost my wings. So it wasn't, but I think I would have won that quite easily. Looked like it. They were great races, weren't they? They were great. Very <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Do you, I mean, of all the things that you raced, do you look back on that time as particularly fondly? Because the racing was so good. Um, and, you know, there were, there were good names, there were good drivers in there. All the cars are quite evenly matched. Um, surely it must have been some of the best racing you, you had. Oh, yeah, absolutely. No, no, look, I mean, A, you worked <laughs> upwards. You could see the road going this way. And, uh, of course, it was nice. It was, you know, whatever, everything was fresh. And every race was a new venture. Oh, you know, Nürburgring in the rains, rain again. And um, I was running only on, on uh, three cylinders because there was some water accumulating in the plug hole. And, um, but then everybody went around the Südkehre, which was still the long loop, the long right and sort of corner and then started run again everybody went down to the inside into the water i was passing everybody around the top and um so i was first i had the whole nurburgring for myself and i came back after one lap and they all looked at me and i couldn't see anything on the tower i couldn't see any signs or anything i had a one minute lead <laughs> i had a one minute lead after one lap wow and then I spun, but I didn't know. So I spun at Brünchen, I had some aquaplaning, but didn't stall, yeah, I stole the engines, but it didn't hit anything. Just sort of sat there on the side of the road and looking up to the corner where they should have appeared any second. And I, we still had batteries, and it, it coughed back into life. And I plucked it in the first gear carefully and continued. One minute, 10 seconds. <laughs> and so on, so wow. that was nice. I won with a second. I saw it with a minute at the end with a broken right rear suspension needing the whole road. But, uh, you know, it was good. Things like that, of course, you never forget. And you know you can do it. You know that you have a little more than most of the others. So. Um, we've got lots of readers' questions, so I'll come on to those in a, in a second. But we just mentioned James Hunt, who you met mm. sort of Formula 3 time. But obviously, you're, you know, you, he sort of came back into your life again when you were at McLaren, and he joined McLaren for that famous 76 season. Um, he, and you, you were sort of you were firm friends. How, how what was he like in F three? And then when you got to F one, was he very much the same person between those two times, or, or he was he was sort of a, a bigger a, no. you know, character when he got to Formula One? No, he was pretty much the same. Well, he got a bigger character then, of course. Once he joined Hiskus, and he won a race, then he became. And as the popularity grew around him, and all that, he felt he had to live up to it. And so sometimes it led him into some silly things, which was we could laugh about, but you could also see, it, look at it with a sort of a doubtful eye whether that's the best thing for him in the long run. I said, "Why do you? What are you trying to to run after?" And so on. We sometimes talked about it, and he just laughed and so on. But, <laughs> you know, I knew him from before, but I saw him one night. I entered from Germany with my Ford Capri at the time, going into London, I rented a little flat, Lansdowne Road, opposite Holland Park. Anyway, so I was on my way there, and suddenly from the side street, without any sort of looking anywhere, a Porsche came out sideways, you know. I thought, it can only be James, the way he drove. So I followed him somewhere, and then I looked, of course it was James, and we went to his place, and it was, it was a lively evening. It wasn't evening anymore, it was a lively night. <laughs> 
they were different days, weren't they? Definitely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, the, the, the Capri, I was, I was going to come on to this later, but your first Le Mans was in a V6 Capri, wasn't it? I, I, and you That's left right. absolutely <coughs> hating it. Or, you, or did you hate it before you went to Le Mans? No. No, no. no. 72 was the first time. And of course, we drove with the Ford Capris, but the was first time confronted with this field of sports prototypes and us with a car which was quick, all right, but not as quick, was 50, 60, 70 kilometers slower than the prototypes. So then you were constantly glued. You didn't want to be making nuisance of yourself, you know, and you try to be out of the way on the, you know, drive on the sensible side so that you're not in the way of these Matras and Alphas and Ferraris and Porsches and you know, you thought, damn, you know, there's another one coming in. You know, I was just at the end of, you know, the air was going right into the middle sun. And I saw these cars, these lights coming up very quick. And it was a bunch of four cars. Marco was one of them. And, um, you know, they, I stopped on the left and I sort of half turned and I stopped. And Marco was spinning and he just missed me with his nose to my car. Would have not done great, great uh, damage. But anyway, so still stopped and I waved him and I said yeah, it's all yours so they took off and I thought damn it anyway and then through the night and it was not really very pleasant and it was not the racing as such because you couldn't really race properly to me there wasn't a non-event in terms of racing yeah. you know it was not the 24 hours which, which irked me or anything like that just a mixture of cars yes, yes. and of course I just met uh, Joachim Bonnier early on you know, a few weeks earlier at Jackie Stewart's house, and uh, he got killed the night running over some Ferrari, in the in the mill sun coming down in the this fast right hander sort of can't even blame the Ferrari guy either because it was just the nature of mm. the race. And as a faster car driver, you were responsible for all your actions more than the other guy. I mean, there was a responsibility for both naturally. But uh, on the other hand, you're the faster one, and sometimes the guy is so occupied with his own line and behavior of his car that he's unaware of that you're coming up at such a great different speed. So it was um, very bad. Was it was, was it a bad. better experience when you got into the, the leading cars? You got into the really quick cars at Le Mans. Oh, that was easy. <laughs> Talking about that, it was it was nice. But but I'm not quite finished with this. Fort Capri race because down the straight at six in the morning or five in the morning I thought I wish the damn thing would blow up because it was such an and it did <laughs> I didn't ref it or anything I didn't force it uh, then I slowly made my way back to the pits and I said I'm so broken. sorry it's broken <laughs> singing it rather than saying it and they said ah then you drive the other one <laughs> oh I thought no and then Jerry came up quickly and he said don't you want to drive? I said, would you like to? He said, yeah, of course I would. So he drove it, and it was nice. And they won their class, so it was okay. But the class win in Monarch, in, 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 in Le Mans is, is not exactly a, a very valuable one. You know, manufacturers can make something of it, say won the class, but nobody looks at it twice, you know, this sort of thing. Um, it's for those it's different now, I must must put that on. It's different now, so when you have a class win now, and it's hotly contested, different groups, that's different. But it wasn't then hotly contested. We were sort of trying to be polite. Yeah, stay out of the way. Um, for those of you watching on the video, you might have seen us all jump then. Um, that's not because someone's been shot down here at Goodwood. Um, that was just a door slamming. Um, it, otherwise, it would look very strange. It's all three of us going, oh, yes, nice. <laughs> we're not, they're not sort of electric seats or anything. Um, 
Jochen, I'm going to take some readers' questions. Yeah. And I've got one here from uh, Lucio Chiodi. I think I've pronounced that right. Um, you shared the car with so many drivers. Who do you think was the best of your teammates? And with whom did you most enjoy racing together? Uh, but yeah, it's uh, the one I drove longest with was Jackie X, and I, I really loved him. Great kid, wonderful, wonderful co-pilot, or if you want a team um, partner, it was really a team partner. It was not a there was no competition between us as such. <coughs> sometimes I was quicker, sometimes he was quicker. <coughs> we had no problems with that, and of course I drove with Jackie Stewart. Not now. I drove with Schechter, with the Capri still. I drove with um, LaRousse. I drove with uh, Marseille, I think, as well. With Fitzpatrick, with... Uh, <coughs> they were all nice. You know, they were all nice. We never had <coughs> any misgiving. I never had a very unpleasant sort of team partner. I, I couldn't think of one. I had more difficult ones, like much later, if you like, in the forms of Michael Schumacher, who wouldn't leave a car alone. I mean, at night, you know, when I said, leave the car, it's good. He said, well, maybe we can do something. And I said, what? He said, well, I don't know, but yeah, maybe we can improve it. And so on. He, at 10 o'clock at night, he was still at it. And I thought, oh, just leave it alone, because that's, that's irksome for somebody who's 20 years old. <laughs> but, you know, he never changed it to the worst, so it was okay. <laughs> I don't think he ever gained much by doing that, but... That's the way his mind ticked, and the way it's the way he worked. The um, I think you've just answered Andrew Oates's question. Um, no, sorry, Bob Spry's question. Um, he was asking uh, whether any co-drivers who drove you mad. I, I, I guess Michael Schumacher would would be that one then. Well, this was sort of near the end of uh, your career, and you um, you were sort of you were a mentor to that that trio of cyber Mercedes drivers, um, Frentzen, uh, Wendlinger, and Schumacher. Could you, I mean, you were talking a little bit about Michael there. Could you tell even then that he was different? He was, had something else? Oh, yeah, I could tell that, yes. That was, everybody could see that. He was different. He was more meticulous. He didn't seem to be <coughs> outwardly that much quicker than the others. Of course, they all reached about the same time after some lapses. But, um, you know, the, the, the freshest and the easiest one seemed Frenzen, driving-wise. But... Um, Frenzen was a happy-go-lucky guy, more sort of in my line, you know, quick, but um, didn't reflect too much on it. But um, <coughs> Michael always worked on it, and then at the end, he knew why he was quick and how he could improve and so on. So he always honed his driving or his style and, you know, suited to the car best and all that. And he wanted the car to be driven in a very specific way. Sometimes after race, we got back and he said, are you coming go-karting tomorrow? I said, don't you want to rest today? He said, no, let's go go-karting. So, <clears throat> and then he drove. I drove a few laps and he laughed himself silly over that. <laughs> and uh, I was quick in the quick corners <laughs> when he didn't have to back off. <laughs> but I was not so quick in the technical end, uh, yeah. you know, with left and right and all that. But then I took times and he wanted to see what was quicker, what was better, um, you know, in various sections. And I said, well, here you improved, there you lost a bit. And um, I could see, he said, I want to drive my Formula One like that. I want to adjust the Ferrari to this sort of go-kart driving style. And that's what he did. He braked left and he was already then on the swaddle and he kept it sort of on a constant slide. 
and I could see it, but to do is another thing. You know, I could in the beginning I remember one one particular race with the GDA in uh, with the thirteen hundred in Zolder, driving against the Mini, which was from Woodhouse in Hamburg. Christian Schmeier, very quick car, good driver too. But anyway, so I drove and I had these funny driving shoes, which are leather socks if you like. And I braked and I had my side of my foot on the swaddle at the same time and I could drive it like this and it was exactly that's what they, what they later did uh, driving like that with the left and the right and um, you know but I could sense it then that this was the right way of doing it. it was perfect you know you got it in and you held it with half your foot and all that and um, you know later we never had the option of driving it always because of the different cars different pedals often it didn't always work the same way and um, later with the brake on the lift and left foot braking generally made it all different. Um, jumping back again, sorry, there's lots of jumping around. Um, we'll, we'll probably get quite good at it by the time we finish. Uh, the moving to Formula One, um, putting aside the first the first race at Silverstone where there was the big pileup, um, the uh, you then went to the Nurburgring, and I think you didn't you pass five cars on your first lap. You must have thought at that point. What what's everyone doing? You know, this is this is easy. Um, yeah, so I don't remember how many I passed at some stage. <laughs> Funny enough, it's I remember that it was pleasant. The car was good, mm. so this was not bad. This uh, TS fourteen, it felt good. And um, you know, at the end, I realized that I was quicker than some others in the Schwalbenschwanz and the the following Galgenkopf onto the long straight, and um, I've felt I could overtake Emerson with the Lotus. He was going slower there and he was really much slower with Galgenkopf for whatever reason. And um, I was taking it nearly flat. I backed a little bit and that was it. And he braked and so on. But then suddenly, last lap, somebody got stuck there, spun. So there was lots of flags and so I had to back off anyway. And then he accelerated first. So I couldn't get him anymore on the straight. So this, otherwise there would have been the points. There would have been six instead of him. And then Jackie Oliver was all upset because he wanted to overtake me and I saw him and I moved over a little bit to, <coughs> to block him. And then in the in the old Fahrerlager at Nürburgring he said, you're Jochen Maas? I said, yes. He said, you nearly drove me in the wall. I said, you mean the hedge? There's no wall. <laughs> I said... <laughs> And so on. So it was, he was not very happy about it, but he accepted it, of course. But I said, but look, it's the last lap. I had to break because of Emerson and da-da-da. I said, that's the way it was. So he accepted it in a way. He was not very happy, but he was okay. I guess local knowledge is, is a big, big thing at the Nürburgring, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. Now you have to... I mean, all the guys who drove there were pretty good at the ring, obviously. And so on. It's just some liked it better. And some had probably absorbed it. I mean, we all did many races there. So it was not that I was that much sort of advanced because I knew better. But I think I imbibed really the rhythm and the, the characteristics of the Nordschleife better perhaps than most others. And that was interesting to see. 75, I felt I will I win the race, you know, first lap. And I was forced down the foxhole. And then my right front delaminated completely because they put an old type tire on the right front. And so at the, the end of my days, I will not know why. They could never answer that question. They said, we don't know, this sort of thing. Because they brought in a whole 
jumbo load full of tires because they were not capable of doing a lap without blowing up one way or the other in practice. So we very nearly didn't have a race altogether. So then they came up with these new tires and they lasted, they were good, except the one didn't. And that was in the foxhole, if you go through it flat out with 280, and then you go flop, 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 suddenly this thing come apart. Not funny. And then of course you have a left-hander, so that's, I crashed quite hard. And of course then I got out of my heap of, of McLaren to M23, which was not recognizable as such. And the guys, the spectators, idiot, can't you go slow in the first lap? Because they didn't know what happened. They just saw me crashing and I were disappointed, of course. Because in practice, I was second quickest behind Nicky on Friday by two tenths. He was just under six minutes or seven minutes. I was just over, you know, ten. So we were two tenths apart. 60,000 more people turned up just because of that. I believe it, absolutely. And that was a pity because you disappoint so many people yeah, yeah. when things like that happen. And I felt I would have, could have won. And of course, following year, same story. I was in the lead, I would have won it, you know, for sure. Then Nicky's accident stopped it all. And then I finished third at the end. Nah, anyway, it's a different story. But, um, but uh, the, the German Grand Prix <coughs> would love an extra 60,000 tickets on their, on their door come race day nowadays. But they had 250,000 already anyway. You know, they had lots of people. In those days, yeah. Just, they're such big stands yeah. that you actually, it's, yeah, it doesn't look like that. Um, we're going to come on to uh, touring cars, more and more, um, more reader's questions in a second. But uh, for the readers, we have a special offer for you from uh, Mercedes-Benz. Uh, you get 10% of everything on their shop, on merchandise from uh, F1 clothing to children's toys. All you need to do is go to shop.mercedes-benz.com and use the voucher code AUTUMN-10 and you get 10% off. Um, you can't use that voucher code with any other and it's valid until the 1st of November. But make use of it, there's lots of cool stuff on there and you get 10% off, which is, uh, can't argue with that. It's always, always nice to have a discount. Absolutely. Um, Jochen, coming back to, to, the, to the touring cars, um, at that time, obviously a lot of F1 drivers actually came and raced the Capris and things like that. And um, what, some obviously were a lot better than others, but you raced with uh, Jackie Stewart. Was he did, did, was he quite quite good in, in a Capri or? He was excellent. I mean, he was <laughs> this bloody Scotsman. He was never driving just Capris, if you like. <laughs> and he came along at the Nürburgring, and he had his Goodyear tires. Had to have it because he had his contract. And we were all on Dunlops. And then Jackie came. I was a little bit quicker than him, two seconds or whatever. And um, so he went up to Carnefus and he said, "Can you perhaps try my car?" because I'm not sure if it's right, because anyway, why is Jochen, maybe his car is a bit quicker, I want to see that. So I did one of the short laps, which means, you know, I didn't do a, a whole lap to come back and do one flying lap, and so on, so this is normally a little bit slower than if it would come from the Antoniespuche, you know, past the straight, because they have a greater speed, then if you go this little concrete loop around the tower, and then you start from there, just where the pit entry is, and so on, so you're still in the accelerating phase, they're much more. Anyway, so I came round, I did a lap, and the car felt for me pretty good. And um, I was again a little bit quicker than him. So he said, hmm, must be me then. And it impressed me to no end. I mean, how he handled the car and how he was such a professional, wonderful. Emerson was 25 seconds behind him, in, with him, in the same car. 25 seconds, yeah. But Emerson never got very 
warm with these sort of cars, you know. He was splendid, of course, with single-seaters. But at the Nürburgring, he took it a little bit, let's say, with a little too much respect, maybe. I don't know, but... Um, I think I would have been 25 minutes behind everyone. <laughs> Somewhere like that. <laughs> nah, but... No, Jackie Stewart, so he impressed me a lot. Schechter was very quick, needless to say, and so on. So we were all pretty much a group, you know. Even um, LaRousse was quick, and um, Alex Soleroig, yeah, and so on. So they were all quite good, quick. Clemza was very fast. Jackie, Jackie was a... An absolute master of the Nordschleife there, wasn't he? I mean, some of those laps he did, especially in wet weather, oh, yeah, yeah. just out of this world. He was so analytical, it was amazing. And he, he realised that was something which I looked upon with the greatest of respect. And I thought, that's how you have to drive. Peter Refsen was another one who was also very clean and sweet and, you know, totally unspectacular. And Jackie was only spectacular because he was so quick. And so at the Nürburgring he flew sometimes because he was at the speed. But, you know, he was not spectacular in terms of sideways and all that. He was avoiding all this and he knew that was the quickest way. And I felt exactly the same. So instinctively I learned a lot from these guys, how they drove their cars. Um, we've got a question here from Matt um, uh, who wanted to ask you about uh, Carlos Pache. And what was he like to have in the same team? And um, what do you think he could have achieved if, if, he'd, if he didn't um, leave us prematurely? Carlos was a great guy. He was very gifted, very talented. He drove very well. He was a lovely boy. I mean, he was a very nice man. I liked him a lot. And, um, yeah, but, you know, this was... He was also very quickly disappointed because with the performance of the 30s cars in that particular year. And so on. So when he left it, when he left the team, then he drove some, you know, later he was, uh, when the he drove Brabham. the Brabham, yeah. which was uh, obviously then he won the race in Brazil and all that. So you, then you could see how good he really was. And you always need the best car or very good car to prove that. No, no, Carlos was a lovely guy. And of course, when he crashed in this plane, which was outright dumb, because... There's a lot so going there's, there's on. There's a lot in going here, on right? as well. It's, it is it is the beginning of the Gwood revival, so I think everyone's a little bit overexcited. I really. think our dog chased them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sorry, Jochen, carry on. So anyway, um, you know when he he had his flying lesson, he was with his teacher, and they flew right into a thundercloud, but a heavy thunderstorm. Nobody else flew, but they took off in the city airport of São Paulo, and right into the thundercloud. Of course, then they had no chance. You know, just hits you on the head and then you go down in a great hurry. So I, nobody understood why his instructor, you know, did it. I mean, anyway, so sad story. But he was a very gifted, one of the many gifted Brazilian drivers. Mm. Um, I've got a, a question here about um, Spanish Grand Prix in 75. Grand Prix win and uh, Le Mans 89 and um, Andrew is wondering which gave you more satisfaction I'm, I'm guessing Le Mans not a wild guess it's not a wild guess no <laughs> it's pretty accurately yeah. you know assumed no look I mean the Grand Prix in 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 in, in Barcelona was Montjuic was a beautiful circuit it was not a circuit but a city circuit like Monaco 
In fact, I think it was even nicer than Monaco because it was more fluent and it was sort of at different corners, you know, different types, similar in a way, but to me almost better. And uh, when this tragic accident happened with Stommelen and when Pace again, they were touching, we had tried to boycott the race. All the drivers wanted to. They said, no, we're not going to drive because the guardrails were not bolted onto the to their stanchions there. I mean, they were just sort of, the the nuts were all missing in the back. The screws were in, but the nuts were not on in the back. So all the teams, even some drivers, went around and tried to fix as many as they could in the most obvious places where you needed them uh, specifically and so on. So that accident finally had nothing to do with the relative insecurity. There was a group of people, about journalists, photographers, who had nothing really to do other than watching it on that particular spot. And of course, when Stommelen got airborne and was launched over the Armco, that's what happens. When, much later, um, Gilles Villeneuve went over Ronnie's wheels in Japan, and he also leapt into the, flew into a bunch of, again, journalists and photographers, killed a few. It was terrible. And you know, that's, that's the difference when you look at the older, beautiful pictures of Banakaye or whatever, who were taken right there. Lots of photographers did that, standing right next on the inside of the line and all that, in Monaco and many other racetracks. Fabulous, and Formula One racing. And you got the most beautiful shots there. But later you couldn't do it anymore because of obvious speeds and all that. You yeah. know what, it's, it was also the same for the fans, you know, as well, and all of us who love racing. Because I think that how close we could get in those days was part of the excitement, actually. Because you could really sense the speed and the skill. And, and now at a lot of tracks, it's a, it's a long way away. All actually. tracks. All tracks. Except Monaco. Except but you sit behind this sky-high fence, which I understand, of course. But um, that's what attracted us in the first place. Yeah. You go to a race and you see it from close up, close... I mean, it happens in Franz Garten. I mean, they came out of the woods. I remember because you had two, two uh, announcers, you know, on the two commentators. And one was in Breitscheid, which was sort of not halfway, but uh, anyway, so. But he told you who was leading and so on. And then you could hear sometimes through the topography of the Nürburgring, you could hear the noise a bit stifled and a bit louder of the cars coming. And then they sort of was, were gone again because they were behind the hills. And then you stared up into this sort of entry corner for the plants garden and suddenly they broke out of the woods i mean they came out like a like a thundercloud i mean yeah they came out you know and they came down and they slowed down a little bit for this little dip and then the following double right hander magic it was so exciting to see and you close up and you could see the guys steering this way that way and so on and you know the differences between the one or the other oh yeah magic and that is missing today I mean, they go so fast, they... Anyway, yeah. There's, a, there's actually uh, there's a really lovely video I saw on uh, Facebook recently, and there's a kid who can only be four or five years old, and he's at a superbike race, I think. And all the bikes set off, and as they come past, the kid gets so excited, he just starts screaming and jumping up and down really? as all the bikes <laughs> pass, and then he calms down again as, as once they've all gone. It happens again, and it's just... Um, but that's what you want to see, you know? You that's what that's, you that's see, how you get yeah. kids into it. Yeah, that's fabulous. Um, so to moving to moving back to F1, um, uh, teammates with Hunt 
in 76. And I'd read, I think it was actually in motorsport, that um, you could stay with him on the corners, but on the straights, he would always pull away. And you later discovered that he was getting better engines than you. Is that, is that right? Number one guys the always number, had a better there engines. Were three, there were three of them, weren't there? Three but, number one. Yeah, that's, uh, of course, you heard the story sort of around the back corners. Keith Stuckworth told me many, many years later, he said, you guys never had a chance. I said, explain. And he told me that. He said, they had up to 70 horsepower more. They were making these evolution engines, but they expected money from Ford to make them for everybody. So they kept it top secret. Not even the team bosses knew that. Teddy Mayer or whoever. And I spoke to Alistair Caldwell about it, and he said, never happened. Because even the spec sheets they got from the, from the test beds were about 14, 15 horsepower, more 18 maybe. Yeah, which was already quite a number, but nevertheless, was manageable. And um, so I said, well, Keith Stuckworth unfortunately passed away in the meantime, so we can't talk to him about it. But I know what he told me, and I believe it, because those three guys from one point onwards, Andretti, Schechter and Hunt, they left everybody. And we all thought, how is that? What's happening? And so on. So it was quite annoying, you know, that we didn't come to terms with that and in, in terms of understanding why suddenly we looked at the cars and I mean you mm. know my teammates got <laughs> it's so it's so interesting to hear you mm. talk about that now in 2016 isn't it because at the time we were all thinking what the hell's going on here you know what what yeah, yeah. And, and but yeah I mean, apart from the obviously the, the deficit in horsepower you had that car was a lovely car to drive wasn't it well, the M20 was good, yeah, yeah, sure. The M25, M26 then had a small, small deficiency. They were not as good anymore. I mean, but with the, with the horsepower, you could win a race, which you did, and so on. So, but the M23 was a wonderful car. Was um, I mean, Gordon Kopok was a fantastic, conscientious designer. I mean, that car, don't forget, it ran for four years almost, and uh, it was always good, and it was a safe car, so you had faith in it which was nice, you know, it wasn't always the same with some other cars I drove, namely a certain ATS, which is, if you translate it, you know, into German, it's all parts shit, alle Teile scheiße. So that was a pity, uh, the first year especially with that team, so that was, that was not good. No. Um, I'm going to go back to the reader's questions. Um, the, uh, there's quite a nice one here from Stevie Mitchell uh, about you racing the Silverstone six hours in the Porsche 935, the Moby Dick car. Mm. Um, apparently that lapped only four seconds slower than F1 the pre from the previous year. Um, what were those 935s like to drive? They must have been quite, um, must have kept you on your toes, I think is the right phrase. To say the least. <laughs> It was a car which I didn't like, for example, at the Nürburgring, because it was a very potent car, very strong, but it didn't have the handling to match. I mean, it handled good on most circuits, but on some other ones it was, you know, you had to be aware of it. I mean, I loved battling, battling it, but it was not a, a nice race car as such. It was too brutal. It was a little too heavy, and it was a little bit too big and too powerful, 800 plus horsepower. I mean, it was a handful sometimes, but you know, it was nevertheless a very good race car. And of course, tracks like Silverstone, where you could really floor it and then sort of, you know, of course it was quick. It was probably quicker in some, some sections, straights especially, of course, than the Formula One cars, 
so much power. For example, I drove in 94, I drove the Williams, Prost's World Championship car, and the car was fantastic. And I was doing senior flat 347, you know, lap after lap was easy because the car was so damn good. It was unbelievable. In the same corner, three years earlier, in 91, with a 291 Sauber, I did 352. Also flat, easy. So the sports cars and the Formula One cars were pretty close. And of course we had later than the 956s and 962s were a lot better than 936s, which was already quicker than the 935. But um, 935 to me was a great race car, but it was not not my favorite. And you mentioned the, um, the, the later Porsches, the 956 and 962. I mean, they were... Uh, Correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, they were great cars, weren't they? I mean, they they won so many races, um, and they must have been quite a change going from something like the 935 through the 936, and then getting to the 956 and 962. Yeah, well, it was a distinct difference, but yet you know it didn't really bother me much because we drove them all the time, forwards, backwards. So we had a six-hour race for the oh, yeah six hours on Saturday in Dijon, and then we had a thousand-kilometer race on Sunday with the 936. So you race the one, then you practice after that, still till seven o'clock in the evening, and then you race the 936. And so the difference in cars, it was a race car. And I mean, they were both, they were both very good. One was a little more of a handful, but you know, you can live with that easily. And so on, so that was good. We won both races, which was nice. Did you get paid twice? Oh, I forgot to ask. <laughs> <laughs> Um, then obviously in sports cars you then went on to Cyber Mercedes and the, um, yeah. the C cars uh, were they a, were they a big step up from a 962 in terms of downforce and how tiring they were to drive I think I read somewhere that they, that was a big thing for you it was a new generation of cars it was a new generation of aerodynamics new generation of chassis building so it was altogether a more modern machine I mean the 962s in the first year in 88 and even 89 were still competitive for the simple reason they were running on better tires. We were still running the, I can say it, the Michelins, which were not very compatible with a higher downforce car because the sidewalls were too soft and so on. They're not bad race tires, if you like, but the sidewalls, as we later saw in Formula One in Indy and so on, where they had to step back, and that's not good, and they never wanted to change it. And when we won it in 89, 88, we pulled out because of that. And in 89, we did endless tests in Clermont-Ferrand on their track. And I ran an ever-increasing speeds over this sort of measuring device, which measured the amount of downforce in weight you had, you created. So we reduced, reduced, reduced all the time. And they told me that in ever so many words, Jochen, you must change the downforce, uh, you're too heavy, blah, blah, blah. And I said, yeah, but why don't you make a stiffer tire? <laughs> Maybe that would help too. But it's against the philosophy in the company. So they can, later when they had the super flat ones, it played less of a role. But then the tire sidewalls were still quite high, so it wasn't very good. But anyway, we won it. But I had, a, really in the slower parts, I had trouble to keep Stuck behind me with a Porsche. And of course on the straight I just drove away because we were a lot, lot quicker down the straight. But um, so that's why we won it. But um, only then will we change later to good years, we were far better off. But yeah. 
Um, we are, we've, we've still got another five, ten minutes, so I'm going to squeeze in a couple more readers' questions um, because they, so many have come in. I must, must ask them. Did you uh, know you had so many fans? There's, there so are far, I could count to ten. <laughs> <laughs> there are, well, there are more than, more than that on, the, on this sheet, Jochen. Um, uh, here we go. For Jamie Smith, I'm a Jochen Mass fan, he starts. Um, so there's a question here from Diego Ruiz, um, or Ruiz, probably. Uh, so greetings, Mr. Mass. Which is the most difficult circuit to drive at night? Perhaps Spa? Question mark. Um, no, I don't think so. No Spa. What it was then, perhaps uh, the old Spa, you know, fast track. But Le Mans was always a bit difficult because pitch black. It is pitch black at night. There's no light in any corner except close to the pits again. And even now at the classic, you know, you still struggle if you don't know the track well. You have a problem. I drove with Brian, with Brian Johnson, you know, and the first time it was in Le Mans, the first time in a Porsche, and then in the rain. <laughs> you can imagine it was bleep, 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 bleep. <laughs> <laughs> we couldn't say much. But anyway, the most difficult circuit at night to me was perhaps Le Mans because the high speeds, and you see things a bit too late. Because when you arrive at nearly 400 and you see something lying there, you can't avoid it. You go over it because you can't just suddenly jerk to one side or the other. Forget it. You know, you just hope for the best, and that's it. So it's um, the old spa. We only did with touring cars, not with the super sports cars. They never drove at night in spa. So that was um, quite a handful. I loved it because it was fast and it was, you know, from Bournemouth onwards, this long right-hander, and then all the way down to Stavro. It was all flat. Mazda Kink was flat and all that. 270, 280, and just, you know, sort of, and I remember I was getting in there, having a slow puncture, luckily, on the right rear, so it started to oversteer going in at that speed, and then it came round the other way, and I couldn't stop it from spinning, and I spun six times down the road without hitting anything, just mildly kissed the guardrail, which blow, uh, broke my rear lights, and of course, then one of the marshals came along, and he said, you got a puncture, I said, thank you. I know that, <laughs> so I continued. But you know, we won the race anyway. But um, interesting in the night night races, when you look at Daytona, at the time it was also quite a handful because you didn't have so many lights what you have today. And uh, I remember I was we had the wrong tires again for Daytona. You know, the, the non-American tires are not built for high speed high bank corners so my right rear blew and I spun around quite a lot and I dipped out in the bottom there and I broke my oil cooler and while I spun the car twisted so much it was the 935 the 935 and uh, my right door dislodged itself and flew away so I had no door I said okay we fix the oil cooler and then we search for a door just drive without one so I drove in the night with a very drafty machine and there was only one light and after the dog leg there's the horseshoe and the dog leg and then you have a right hand and that was a big spotlight high up and um, there was just no other car around me and um, I was going around and suddenly something black shot past me on the side and the open door there and I got such a start I thought I'd overlooked somebody and I, Whoa! You know, I really got a, a shock in that moment it was my own shadow yeah, that's <laughs> so that's the Trouble when you don't have doors. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great story, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. Um, 
I said these. I was wondering. So talking about accidents, there was it the the Paul Ricard's accident in F1 that was that when you decided enough was enough in Formula One, or well, was it that was that decision a sort of a, 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 a bigger? No, we had of course the Villeneuve accident in '82, and then afterwards I had a, an accident which could have cost me dearly, and uh, luckily I had nothing, or as good as nothing, and that really woke me up or rattled me and I said, forget it, team's no good. They nicked all the money I brought with uh, Rossmans and so on and um, they never paid me a sou. Not at service, by the way. But, you know, we don't want to talk about that. But um, he didn't have any to begin with. The other ones did have, but they had to plug up a lot of holes from the previous years. <laughs> the usual thing in Formula One, yeah. often. And, uh, you know, that's the way it was. And so on. So, then I decided to stop and continue with the sports cars. Not that I thought they were so much safer, but at least they were less intense because you did six hours or 24 hours or whatever, 1,000 kilometers, and occasionally a 500-kilometer race. So you took it a little more with a grain of salt, a little bit easier, and you were not always flat out like in Formula 1. So for that it was a bit, and the cars were built a little better in terms of breakages. You know, when you hit something, it was equally bad because you sat quite far forward. The Sauber later, the Sauber Mercedes were by nature better because the cars were stronger built and uh, you know, C11, of course, carbon would have been a lot stronger and an impact. Fortunately, we never found out that way. Um, a question from me, actually, rather than uh, the readers. <laughs> I'd, obviously, uh, having uh, stopped racing professionally, you now race lots of amazing historic cars pre-war Grand Prix cars, later cars. Um, if, you were to, if you were to be asked to take one car to a circuit, what would, what would you take? Would you take something from your professional career or would you maybe take an auto union? Or, and where would, you go, where would you go with it? No, no, no. I want to take a car which I didn't race in okay. my active years. Okay. And, uh, you know, I love these cars from before my time. You know, this because these were the machines which intrigued me when I looked at them. And I, I really... The drooling, I was drooling over E-types or, or over GT40s or over whatever, and they were fantastic machines. The, the, you know, the 906s, 910s, Porsches, 904s. Oh. You know, we, first I saw it in the magazines, this hobby, it's called Hobby Magazine, and it was a German race car mm-hmm. made out of GFK, and it looked good, and it was quick, and I drove one not so long ago, and I loved it immediately. I thought, what a damn nice car, you know, and so on. So, and of course, the races, Targa Florios, yeah, yeah. the Millimilias, da 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 da. It was fantastic. No, Millimilias, not so much. They were stopped in '58. But um, Millimilia, sorry, uh, the Targa Florio was particularly interesting. And that was amazing. And I regret in a way that this sort of slipped through my fingers because I was too young in racing, you know. I didn't get a chance to drive that before this halted it as well. But, um, you know, to drive, if I would take a particular car now, if, I, if it would have been a car from my race days, it would be one of the Sauber's and, of course, the Formula 2. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'd, the we'd, marches we'd, we'd, with the BMW engines. we over that with, with, with all the stuff yeah, we've yeah. been talking about. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, and, of course, the 30s Formula 2 was a magnificent car. It's a lovely car. We suffered a little bit from the lack of horsepower compared to the BMWs, lack of torque as well. But I think the 30s, 
with a BMW engine probably would have been a better car than even the March. So, but pretty academic. We could never do that. But um, you know, I did a few races with the Formula Twos, with the with the March Formula Two with the BMW engines, and I think I won them. It was Hockenheim once or twice and Nürburgring and so on. So that was commode, as the French would say. It was nice and easy. Cars were great. But I loved the Formula Twos because the relationship between horsepower and handling was perfect. And uh, you know, when you have a very powerful car, you go too quick. You know, on the straights, you have to brake harder, and they're sort of out of balance, like the Formula 5000 cars. They could never find the right sort of beautiful balance, which a less powerful car might have had. A good Formula One was better, of course, for the, for that reason too. Over a Formula 5000, less weight to begin. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. But it also from the power relationship to the handling was much better. So you, you take a Formula 2 car to Nürburgring? I tell you what, I would love to drive this Williams, for an example, which I was happy to drive for 20 laps in Le Castellet at the Nürburgring at the Nordschleife. I would have <laughs> loved it. It would have been such a nice car to drive wow. there. Yeah, I know. It's pretty uh, hallucinating. <laughs> <laughs> why not? Why not? Why not? <laughs> Let's keep on dreaming. That's great. Yeah. yeah. Um, Jochen, thank you so much for such an entertaining, fascinating hour. And Rob, thank you so much for, for joining us. Um, it's great to have you back. And uh, hopefully we'll have you have a back, back again very soon. Great to be here. Thank you. And yeah. thank you, Jochen. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks, Jochen, Rob. Thank very you. kind. Uh, we'll, nice. we'll see all of you next month for another Motorsport Magazine podcast in association with Mercedes-Benz. Bye-bye for now. Dad, when we get home, can we... Yeah. You'll have to play it in the garden, though. Dad, can we stop at the... Good idea. We'll get one for Mum, too. Daddy, I think I need... You'll have to hold on to it. The new Mercedes-Benz V-Class has built-in navigation, active park assist with reversing camera, and electric sliding doors on both sides as standard. All you need to anticipate your family's needs. The new seven-seater V-Class, inspired by parents. Search V-Class. Dad. Dad, don't even think about it. So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media. Source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. 
It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. 